Welcome back for our second discussion today in our series, Discussions on Management and Governance. Appreciate you joining us. Um, this afternoon, we're speaking with Professor Al Roberts about his forthcoming paper in the first issue of Perspectives on Public Management and Governance. And his paper is titled, The Aims of Public Administration, Reviving the Classical View. We're gonna take some time this afternoon to get into some of the details of his paper. Have a, and have a discussion with the author firsthand. So really looking forward to that. Uh, again, I'm Justin and Nathan is with me as well. Hello everyone, glad to be here again. And Al Roberts. Hi. So just um, some reminders about the parameters of what we're gonna be doing. Um, this should last, last up to an hour, but we'll cut it short in respect of everyone's time about 5 p.m. Eastern sharp. This episode is being um, aired live on Facebook Live from the PMRA Facebook page. We'll also be archiving the video there and on the Public Problems YouTube channel and the Public Problems podcast. So we'll have access to those uh, in archive form as well. So I'd like to provide just a little bit of background information on Professor Roberts. Al Roberts is the director of the School of Public Policy at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is a professor of political science he writes extensively on problems of governance, law, and public policy. He has a book forthcoming, um, uh, I think in January, is that right, Al? Uh, it's coming out, actually it's out in the UK and it'll be out in the US in, uh, in early March. And the title of that book again is, Can Government Do Anything Right? Is that correct? Right. Coming out from policy. The, yeah. Okay, great. And the mo his most recent book uh, before the, uh, this one that's just coming out is Four Crises of American Democracy, and it was uh, published by Oxford University Press last year. Uh, Professor Roberts received a JD from the University of Toronto in 1984, master's degree in public policy from Harvard University in 1986, and a PhD in public policy from Harvard University in 1994. Um, as I was getting ready for this conversation now, I noticed that you publish across a number of topics. So I was curious as how you think of your intellectual history or your. <laughs> uh, I guess I would characterize my intellectual history as dubious. <laughs> um, well, I, uh, I, I started off in political science and law and, um, and then I studied public policy at the Kennedy school, which had a, kind of um, economistic strain to it at the time in the 80s um, and then studied did a little work in public management but um, I've always had kind of an expansive view of I'm interested in governance I'm interested in how the challenge of governing well especially in turbulent times and I think you have to have kind of a uh, take a broad view when you're thinking about questions like that Yeah, I think that's and that's one of the things that your your paper highlights as well is kind of shifting the the unit of analysis from uh, within agencies to a broader view of the state. Um, so that's one of the themes that runs throughout the paper. What uh, where did uh, when did you start kind of having the idea for this paper and uh, what's its kind of background before it arrived here in the first issue of uh, perspectives on public management and governance? Well, I've been um, uh, arguing for kind of a, a broadening of, or how do I put this, uh, for broadening the range of scholarship that's um, encouraged within the domain of public administration for quite some time. And um, 
you know, the, the focus for the last 30 years has been on what I'll call the public management approach. It's got sort of a focus on the agency level, the program level, um, very much concerned with improving uh, efficiency in uh, agency or program operations, and has a very heavy focus on uh, problems of management in a uh, relatively small number of advanced uh, Western democracies. Um, and I think it makes sense as a response to the the uh, predicament that those countries found themselves in, especially in the last quarter of the 20th century, and we can elaborate on that if we want. But um, I guess I have uh, two concerns. The, the first is that, you know, public administration doesn't always do a great job of, of understanding its own intellectual history. Um, and I've done some writing on that particular point. It, uh, we're not great at studying our own intellectual history or writing about it. Um, and so we're not always fully aware of the circumstances that are causing us to think about our domain in a particular way. Um, but, you know, it's also true that um, if you want to think about how you renovate government to deal with uh, rapidly changing circumstances, or you want to have a real conversation about um, challenges of administration in different countries, you have to uh, develop a, a, a bigger and a broader perspective, and that's one of the things I'm arguing in this paper. So yeah, so I, I can jump in here now. Um, I I think one of the things that I, I love about public administration um, and oh, the way that a lot of our departments are set up is that it's so multidisciplinary, um, and I loved how that came through in your paper, um, and you talked about all of these different areas where there's overlap in the sorts of questions that Public administrator, public administration scholars might care about or should care about. I guess is is part of the argument that you're making, um, and all of these other fields of study. And the other thing that I thought was really cool is that the fields that you were looking at are almost entirely different than the ones that I've looked at when I wanted to do sort of interdisciplinary stuff. I've um, I'm more familiar with um, American political science or, or American politics, that subfield within within political science. Um, and a little bit with uh, social psychology and some so sociology work, especially on race and, and some of that kind of stuff. Um, and you pointed out all of these areas where there's cross-pollination or at least opportunity for that um, that are completely different. Um, so maybe you can uh, jump into some of that. I know in, the, in this article you kind of focus on a few different areas. Tell us a little bit about that and, and what, what these other disciplines are doing. Sure. Well, you know, so let me actually back up. So I, I because I pulled out an article I was doing. This is the um, the 50th anniversary of 1968, of course, which is like a really tumultuous year in, in American politics. And uh, it occurred to me the other day that uh, we're coming up this fall on the 50th anniversary of the fifth, uh, of the first Meadowbrook conference uh, that was held in upstate New York by a group of uh, young PA scholars at the time who wanted to kind of shake the field up. But um, there was a, a Dwight Waldo, who was then at the Maxwell School, actually gave a talk to uh, an ASPA a meeting in uh, Albany, New York, in April 1968, and it was like almost 50 years ago. And uh, it was later published in PAR, and uh, it's called Public Administration in a Time of Revolutions. And... Uh, and uh, Waldo was talking in April 1968, so you know the year had not even got to its most 
a difficult time yet, but um, he, he basically says this. He says, let me ask the question, is public administration responding at a high level of consciousness to the fact that we are in a time of revolution, revolutions? And then he says, my own response would be no. And so, you know, that's sort of what's driving me in this paper, um, this sense that uh, we're also living in a time of revolutions. And in fact, I'd probably make the argument that turbulence or is sort of the normal state of affairs in most countries of the world at most times. And, uh, you know, one of our jobs uh, as scholars in PA is supposed to be to give advice to governments on how you navigate turbulent waters. And if you look back at the field in the 1930s, that's exactly what these folks thought they were doing when they were setting up the field. You know, the country was in danger. Uh, they didn't call the United States a fragile state because they hadn't invented the term yet. But the United States was fragile. Uh, Charles Merriam had this phrase where he called the United States a sixth state because um, he hadn't invented the language of fragility yet. Um, and, and so basically those guys were trying to figure out how do you renovate American government to make it durable, to make it survive rough waters? And that's what Waldo's getting at in 1968, and that's what we need to be talking about today. And the difficulty is that for the last 30 years, we have sort of refined our capacity to address smaller questions with more rigor, and we have underinvested in the capacity to think about big problems of state adaptation and how you kind of deal with challenging and changing circumstances. And the problem is that that's the big, that's the question of the moment, you know, uh, how do you navigate rough waters? So one of the points I'm making in here is that um, while we kind of ran down our capacity in PA to think about those questions, there were other domains that were to some degree taking up territory that we uh, abandoned. Uh, one of them is the field of international relations. Uh, another is the field of state building, uh, which is interested explicitly in fragile states. Uh, and another is American political development, which is basically interested in state building in the American context, in the sort of historical context. And so one of the arguments I'm making is that we need in PA to kind of recover that capacity to think about the big problems of adapting to turbulent times. And one of the ways we do that is by uh, restocking the theoretical toolkit and looking around at those fields, not to replicate what they're doing, but basically to look for the concepts and methods uh, that might be appropriate to the questions we want to address. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, so I was telling, uh, we were talking with uh, Kirk Emerson uh, earlier today, as I, I think I, I mentioned, and I, I actually described your paper as a, a, brush of fresh, a breath of fresh air. Uh, this is uh, what you're hitting on here. Nathan and I are both fairly, uh, fairly young scholars, um, come up in a very firmly the public management tradition. Um, and there are some things that that tradition does really well and that are very, very, um, very interesting and that we both uh, contributed to. We've had the, one of the things we're excited about, too, with uh, PPMG is an opportunity to at least start asking some having places where we can ask some of these bigger questions and have some different methods associated 
quit thinking about them rather than it needing to fit into what has become, you know, uh, more traditional setups for uh, most of the papers in PA, which is hypothesis testing and an uh, econometric model and or a psychometric model and rejecting uh, or not rejecting null hypotheses, which is, is very important. It's a very important type of learning and a, a way of discovering things. But, you know, we've bemoaned amongst ourselves as kind of young scholars that it seems like sometimes we're, our field has been hesitant or been really a, a just avoiding some of the harder, bigger questions. And so it was really nice to see um, you making a direct call for, no, let's tackle these big questions. And, um, and it, uh, you know, you also raise up one of the objections to it, which is then the objections we've had to ourselves as young scholars, which is, well, but tenure sounds really nice, right? As like a, as like a choice, right? And with the expectations, uh, you know, on young scholars for the amount to publish, it's hard to foray into different types of uh, in, of knowledge. And so the tensions there are really interesting uh, to think about at our field level. And I was really happy. I really enjoyed reading this paper and thinking through uh, some of the specific ways in which maybe public administration has seeded questions to other fields that are that are rightfully right in the domain of governance and administration questions. Yeah. So let me pick up on a couple of points there. Um, the, the first is that um, you know, sometimes people read my paper and they think, oh, I'm arguing for abandoning the kind of research that public management is doing. And that is not what I'm saying, you know. Uh, but what I am saying is that, you know, a piano has a large set of keys and we should play all of them, not just ones down at one end. Um, if you go into economics, there's microeconomics and macroeconomics. And in your professional trainings and economists, you get both ends. And it's not regarded as uh, kind of either or thing. You know, you need diversity. You need um, kind of uh, flexibility, virtuosity. And uh, you can say that about a whole bunch of other disciplines as well. And we need to have that same kind of virtuosity, that capacity to play the range uh, in PA as well. So what we need to do is develop the kind of theoretical toolkit and methodology that allows us to look at the big questions the way we once did and the way that other fields do. And, you know, one of the complaints or concerns is, well, we won't be able to address big questions with rigor. If we raise the level of analysis, it's going to get all mushy and fuzzy. Um, and that's just not the case. I mean, you can look at other fields that are doing well-respected, rigorous scholarship at a different level of analysis. Uh, and if they can do it, if IR can do it, if state building can do it, if APD can do it, it's not entirely clear why public administration can't do it. These guys are in other fields are doing work that's uh, conceptually sophisticated. They're using well-defined, crisp concepts. They're using rigorous methodologies, and they're getting they're publishing work that's well-respected and influential. So. You know, the, the worry that we're going to give up something by moving to a different level of analysis, I think, is a, is uh, misguided. And, and the other point I think I would make is that, you know, the, the, there's sort of an assumption that we only address the kinds of questions we can address using our preferred methodologies. And that, that is completely the backward way to think about research. You identify the questions that are urgent, and then you address them as well as you can 
uh, and you choose the methods that allow you to answer a pressing question. Um, and then the other difficulty we've got, which you've also flagged, is um, one of the unfortunate tendencies of the last 30 years is that the incentive structure in academia generally and in public administration more specifically has become tighter and more onerous. We're kind of in this iron cage where we care intensely about journal rankings and uh, the journals themselves um, have uh, increasingly sharp preferences about methods and questions. And then there's this pressure, especially on junior academics to do what the machinery requires in order to get promotion and uh, tenure and promotion. And um, I think there's two responses to that. The first is that, and I intimated this in the paper and in some other writing I'm doing, increasingly there are a number of senior scholars who are basically providing um, reassurance to junior scholars who want to kind of branch out. Um, there are an increasing number of senior scholars, many of whom were involved in public management in the early phase, who are basically saying, okay, you know, um, we need to kind of diversify our thinking here. And so that's a way of providing a license for junior scholars to think, to think different, to use the old Apple slogan. Um, uh, and, you know, the other point, I think, is um, a little rebellion probably wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, it, the, the burden is on all of us, whatever our rank, uh, if we think that the, the ship is kind of heading off in the wrong direction to basically say, hold on, you know. There are urgent questions here, questions that profoundly affect social welfare that need to be addressed. And that's why I sort of go back to that Waldo quote from 1968. And, you know, the whole gang that went to the first Meadowbrook conference who basically said, look, the country is in trouble uh, and the field is not addressing the questions that are, are, are troubling the country. And in a moment like that, um, you sort of have to challenge the status quo and say, look, the times require that we shift direction. Um, I, I want to get into more of some of the uh, practical stuff about how we think about changing the field um, a little bit later. Hopefully we have time to come back to that. Um, but let's drill down just a little bit more into, um, you've referred back to this important moment a few decades ago where PA was maybe trying to define itself differently than they have now. Um, and in your article, I thought you did a really nice job of identifying these six features. Um, so maybe you can tell us just a little bit about, um, about what, how PA defined itself back then, other than just you know, you've given us a little bit this sort of addressing these big questions, um, but, but what were a little, some of the specifics for how PA defined itself back then? Sure, well basically uh, the early scholars in public administration, um, we tend to have a kind of a pinched and misguided view about what they were on about, but basically these are folks who were heavily influenced by the circumstances. The, the country was uh, being transformed radically between about 1900 and 1945, you know, convulsed by urbanization, industrialization, rapid uh, mass immigration, mass migration within the country from south to north, technological change, uh, depression, war, climate change in the Midwest. They actually used the phrase climate change to discuss what was going on in the Midwest in the 1930s, the great drought. Um, and um, 
and pandemic, polio, influenza, uh, you know, these were really, really tough times. And in the darkest moments, especially in the 1930s and the 1940s, the question was, could the country survive? Could the country hold together? And that's not hyperbole. That's the question that these guys were asking themselves. And when they went in to give advice to the federal government and the state government, they're, you know, they're not thinking about sort of small questions about how do you get agency X to uh, work better and cost less. They're basically addressing the big question of how do you renovate the entire architecture of government so that it's robust and it's responsive to the crisis of the moment. And there's this sense they're, they're actually recognizing that, you know, the big issue here is, does democracy work? Can we make a democratic system actually do the job? Because we look around the world and we can see that non-democratic regimes um, seem to be outpacing us. You know, whether it's the fascist regimes in Italy and Germany or the Soviet regime in Russia, uh, there's this sense that there's a real alternative out there. And by the way, that's sort of the kind of easy, you know, the questions we've got going right now. So these guys are thinking about big questions of state architecture. They're thinking about how you renovate administrative capacity to meet the, the, the grave challenges of the moment. They're really attentive to the fact that, you know, there's an element of danger here. There's risk here. Um, we have to get it right. Um, and so that's the kind of um, ethos, the, the framework that these guys are using when they're thinking about the study of public administration in the 30s. Yeah, so to, to follow up on that a little bit, I think for some of us, um, this is maybe a little bit counterintuitive that um, I think part of your argument is that we need these broader theories. Um, and I think in your introduction or maybe the first or second page, you talked a little bit about how practical good theory is. Um, but I think in this day and age, a lot of times there's almost, um, and sometimes I hear the way um, the, the public administration or their other related academics fields are talked about, there's almost, um, it's almost viewed as though uh, being practical or practitioner oriented is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum from being um, theoretical and, and thinking about, about big theory, that sometimes the big theory is considered to be esoteric. Um, and I, I, I think that's clearly not a view that you hold, um, but Talk to us a little bit about how that that works, and um, you know, the other, another phrase that comes to mind for me is evidence-based. Right? We talk about evidence-based public administration, evidence-based um, policy, and almost always, I think that word "evidence-based" is referring not to theory, but is referring to uh, quantitative empirical studies. So, what? Um, how does theory? come into play with practice and addressing these really present problems that you're talking about? Why do we need theory to help address those? Well, I mean, I guess there's a, each one of us is playing a, a small bit in the stream of history, right? And um, I think we need to understand which way the ship is going. We need to kind of understand uh, what the stream of history looks like. Like, what are the trends? Where do we imagine that we're going to be 20 years from now? What challenges do we think government's going to address? Uh, where have we been and where are we going to? Um, and if you're at the very top of government, that's sort of what you have to think about. You have to think, sort of anticipate what the challenges are going to be, 
um, and be ready to address those challenges. Uh, let's take climate change. You have to be thinking about how you adjust the overall capacity of government to deal with climate change. What's going to happen in a whole bunch of dim dimensions because climate is changing? It's, uh, it's not just, you know, it's going to be emergency response. It's going to be public health. It's going to be questions of foreign policy. It's going to be questions of infrastructure. Um, you need to be not just kind of dealing with the pressures of the moment, but thinking about what the country is going to need 10 or 15 years down the road. Uh, and the other point I think I would make is that, you know, even if you're much lower down in the bureaucracy, you are, you know, top level leaders, they kind of develop an overall sense of what the country needs to do, a kind of public philosophy or philosophy of the moment about what government is supposed to do. And everybody in government kind of has to have an understanding of what that philosophy is about, because that constrains what anybody in the bureaucracy is able to do. We all are constrained by the zeitgeist. And so we need to know where the zeitgeist is coming from and where it's likely to go. And so um, we need to have anybody working in the public service needs to have that capacity just to kind of step back and say, where am I in the kind of overall stream of events? And, you know, one response I get is, well, that doesn't sound very practical, Al, but, you know, there's, if you go into programs in public, in international relations, which incidentally also profess to be training people for public service, you know, they, that's exactly the language they use. And you look at the introductory curriculum in a program in international relations designed for people who are going into professional service immediately afterward. Well, they start off talking about theories of international relations and the dynamics of international politics and different ways of thinking about the broad and long trends in history. And, you know, a reasonable question would be, why is it that training for public service in that domain starts off with that kind of mentality, but training for public service in the domestic sphere doesn't? And I think we could learn something from the way in which folks in IR think about their enterprise. All right. I'm, that's hard to follow up. Um, that's a pretty good, nice back and forth there. So thank you, gentlemen. We do have our first uh, live question. So I'm going to throw it up and, and ask questions about democratic versus non-democratic regimes. So I'm not sure. Um, let's see what we can take a stab at it with. So the actual question is from... Arthur Sitto, which says, what is meant by democratic and non-democratic regimes in this discussion? So what do we mean when we're talking about democratic versus non-democratic regimes? And regardless of how they're defined, would it be correct to, to say this or that regime responds better to people's needs in terms of public service? So what I hear there is a question on uh, what's the difference between a democratic and non-democratic regime and do democratic or non-democratic regimes empirically provide people's services better? Well, so, um, you know, I've got a, I've got a dog in this fight. Uh, I, I, I like democracy and I, I, you know, I've got a normative commitment as I think we all should that, uh, that uh, the best form of governance is one that uh, respects human rights, including the right of people to select their own rulers. Right. Um, but having said that, um, there have been moments in history where the capacity of democratic systems to govern effectively to address the challenges of the moment has really been in doubt. You know, in the 1930s, when this field got going, 
the big question was whether democratic systems could de deliver the goods. Could they provide uh, assure security, public order, economic stability, economic growth, um, and so on? And you know, the the big question was: uh, um, Would the Western democracies be uh, outpaced by, as I said, the fascist regimes or the or the Soviet regime? And we've got a, a similar question going right now. You will have noticed that the Chinese state media last week was, or the week before, I should say, was making some observations about uh, the budget impasse in Washington. And I believe that they said that the, uh, you know, the budget standoff re revealed, in their phrase, the chronic flaws of American government. Um, and so, you know, if you're... Uh, in the, the Chinese state apparatus today, um, you're basically reprising um, the sort of debate that we had in the 1930s. You're basically arguing it's not clear that Western democracy, that liberal democracy is a superior model. It's not at all clear. Um, and a Chinese leader would say, look, you know, we're delivering the goods. We're delivering public order. We're delivering economic growth. And moreover, we're, we're respected by the people we govern. Um, and there's polling data to show that a large number of uh, the, uh, Chinese uh, like what their government is doing. So, um, and the big issue in the coming decades is going to be the question of uh, which form of government is, is better, one-party government, uh, authoritarian rule, or Western liberalism. Um, you know, it's it. We're only a few years away from uh, a period in which the largest economy in the world is not. It's not going to be the U.S. anymore. It's going to be China. Um, and we can't take for granted that uh, the dominant power is uh, also a liberal democracy. So, to some degree, we're going to be on the back foot, and we have to deliver, show that we can deliver the goods and. That's a big question about the capacity, our capacity to design a state that um, performs well, that's robust, um, and also uh, respects human rights. And so kind of our mission, because we're the folks who are supposed to be expert on the details, is to figure out how you design, consolidate, administer institutions that can perform well on the fundamentals and also respect human rights. Yeah, I, I um, when, you, when we started, um, when you started that, tr uh, that thought, uh, one of the things that made me think of is this normative piece, which you touch on in the paper, but um, seems to be often absent from a lot of our discussions in PA. Um, I, so, I make the claim, I do a separate podcast, Al, called Public Problems, and in there I make the claim that we should all be able to essentially agree as we're talking through public issues that, you know, minimizing human suffering is a goal, right? And another one is protecting human rights, which you mention in your um, in your paper. What, what, what uh, values do you think the classical view, um, as you've referred to in your paper, held on to more dearly and more carefully than maybe more, what's more mainstream now, maybe in the public management view. I mean, it seems a little bit like some of those values are stripped away or not as focused on, but how, what, which values would, he, protecting basic human rights, democracy is one, 
what other values should what other normative values should PA be pushing towards? Well, I think, and I should step back by the way. So I'm um, I, I I've done this paper, and there's another paper that's also available in SSRN. It's coming out in a, another journal uh, later on. It's called Strategies for Governing, um, and I'm also working on a book manuscript on the same title right now. And so basically. What I've done is built on this paper and, and made a, a broader argument because what I'm trying to do is kind of build that theoretical toolkit that allows us to think more systematically about the higher level questions. And mm -hmm. what I'm arguing is that um, uh, the leaders of all states develop these strategies for governing, that there are certain core functions that they think need to be performed, and then they develop strategies that seem likely to achieve uh, those goals in the circumstances they happen to be confronting. And, um, you know, leaders develop different strategies and they put different weight on uh, things like human rights. And so to reframe what I just said, the Chinese uh, leadership right now has got a strategy for governing that they believe works, but clearly puts less emphasis on things like rule of law, uh, and respect for civil liberties, freedom of speech, and uh, so on. And so, um, and on my own view is that we ought to be good at talking about strategies for governing, strategies that are effective, but we also ought to go in and put our cards on the table and say, look, you know, we've got normative commitments here. Um, and uh, we don't just kind of describe strategies. We also uh, have views about which ones are, are preferable to others. And um, clearly, respect for civil liberties, uh, respect for the basic idea that people should be allowed to choose their own rulers, um, uh, equality of uh, opportunity, and so on. Um, the folks who were originally starting up this field didn't talk about human rights explicitly because that vocabulary didn't come in for about 10 or 15 years later, but uh, they were very clear that, you know, there were these sort of fundamentals of, of human welfare that they cared about. And democracy was clearly, so, and rule of law was clearly something they cared about. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for taking that one on. Um, Nathan, any, what? Uh, yeah, so one, one question I had when I was, I was reading your paper is, um, and I think it underlines some of what we've just been talking about too, is um, you, you talked about public administration seeding some ground on some of these issues to other fields. Um, and I, I don't hear a lot of discussion within public administration, at least in the journals that I read, which might be that I'm reading mostly the public management ones. Um, but uh, about these big questions like democracy versus non-democracy and what is the best way to sort of organize society. Um, but we do have other fields that are trying to answer some of those questions in various ways. Um, so I guess the, the question that kind of came to mind is why bring that back into public administration? Is like, what is our perspective on those issues that's going to be different um, than the way those questions are already getting answered in other disciplines? Or are they not, not really getting answered in other disciplines? Why is it that we need public administration to exist to try to answer some of these um, bigger questions about institutions and things like that, um, that that you bring up in this paper? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, um, the there are, so 
we are kind of embedded in a kind of Western. I mean, one of the problems with public administration uh, at the moment is that, you know, there's a system for the production and dissemination of knowledge. It's basically, you know, scholars who write stuff that go into journals and, you know, that's our principal mechanism for uh, recognizing quality work and disseminating it. And I think, you know, one thing we have to recognize is that the entire apparatus for scholarly production is dominated by a, a very small number of, of Western countries, uh, notably the UK and, pardon me, the US, the UK, maybe a small handful of countries in Western Europe, you know, some of the kind of, a uh, few of the Commonwealth countries like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, but a really small number of countries, like less than 10. There are 195 states in the world. Um, and uh, most of them, including most of the uh, populous countries in the world, are not accommodated in uh, those journals. So there's something profoundly out of whack with the, the, the kinds of questions that are being examined in the recognized journals and the major problems that are confronting most people in the world. Um, so uh, that's something I think we have to address. It's also the case, and I address this in the other paper I mentioned, Strategies for Governing, um, that, you know, if you look at the way in which many scholars from Asia have been looking at the field, they've been basically making the same point. You know, we've got fundamental questions of governance that are not being addressed in the scholarly literature that are looking at these rather refined questions about agency operations. You know, we've got bigger or more fundamental questions that we're, uh, need, we need to uh, think about. So there are a lot of folks out there in the world uh, especially in countries that are largely excluded from the top-tier journals that are posing the kinds of questions that I think uh, need to be uh, addressed. And if I could just kind of elaborate on that point uh, for the uh, moment, you know, there's the something called the Fragile States Index, and uh, it's put out by the Fund for Peace. Um, and they kind of do a, a gauge of, of the fragility of different countries in the world um, and they find that there are more states in the yeah, so we are used to dealing with worlds uh, uh, that a handful of countries that are generally recognized as stable. But we have to recognize that in the global experience, stability is like unusual. It's not the norm, it's unusual. There are more states uh, that are in a state of fragility or extreme fragility than there are stable states. If you look at nine of the 10 most populous countries in the world, um, all of them are counted as fragile or extremely fragile, except for the United States. So, you know, fragility is the norm. The kinds of stuff that the state building literature looks at is actually the norm in most of the world. But we don't tend not to look at that stuff in the, the mainline PA journals. So there's something out of whack with what we're studying and writing about and what global needs are. Um, and, you know, why should we bring it back in? Um, well, I mean, to put it crudely, if, if we give a damn about uh, democratic governance, if we want to see it survive, uh, we need to start um, addressing the question directly um, because that's going to be the big issue of the coming century. Um, the most populous countries in the world are India and China. And there's a head-on question about, you know, which regime 
is going to survive and thrive in coming decades. One uh, that purports to be a liberal democracy and one that is uh, quite deliberately rejecting the, the model of liberal democracy. Well, do we have a dog in that fight? I mean, do we care which way that story goes? Um, I think we should, you know, we have to be ready to fight for the principles of liberal democracy. And that means we have to be able to show that it works in practice, that it's durable, it's resilient, that it delivers the goods. And, you know, that that's uh, a critically important question. And, and we are supposed to be good at saying something about that because we in PA are supposed to be the people who understand how the apparatus of government works, uh, how you can design institutions so that they actually perform well and are resilient. Um, you know, there are theorists out there who can tell you in the abstract how the house ought to be designed, but we're the contractors and the architects who can tell you, okay, this design will carry the load, this design won't. Um, so we have specialized knowledge that informs the big question of how you design a liberal democracy that actually survives in the long run. Yeah, I, I think that's, I like how you put that. I, it does seem, one of the things that I've thought about in reflecting on the, my, the questions that I'm interested in is things um, feel quite turbulent. I, I, I take your point that uh, turbulence is the norm, but uh, feeling uh, as someone who grew up in a time that was relatively peaceful, um, when you start seeing more turbulence around you and it's leading societies to ask these bigger questions of, are we in, do we prefer an authoritarian state and the, and what comes along with that? Or do we prefer a liberal democracy? I mean, it really does feel like, you know, 68, you know, being the 50th anniversary of 68 is something you mentioned. And it feels like the questions about, making strong arguments for liberal democracies seems really important right now when the, uh, there aren't real commitments to that throughout the world and some evidence that those things are in retreat. And so while the question of how to govern, uh, govern efficiently also is, remains important, it does seem that it is at a point in time where because of some of these, the levels of turbulent that we're the level the levels of turbulence we're seeing on the international stage really makes it seem like these are questions that we need to be making arguments for and showing rigorous analytical thought behind and uh, seeing what the empirical evidence has to suggest. I mean, I, I think it really does feel a bit different than even when I started a graduate school about what questions needed to be ordered by our field because things feel a bit more, you know, turbulent than they were in the past. Yeah, one of the things argued, I so I did this book with Oxford last year called Four Crises of American Democracy. And in the last chapter of the book, I talked a bit about the way we think about institutions. And, and one of the observations I made was that there is this tendency in a certain kind of corner of the academic literature to dwell on the stability and persistence of institutions. We kind of think that stability, um, persistence, rigidity is the norm. And I actually think if you look at the world around us, uh, flux, instability is, is the norm. Um, you know, we tend to 
get misled by the experience of uh, a few developed countries in the late 20th century where there was a nice long run of, of peace and stability. Um, but that's not the bigger picture. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm 56 years old. I'm, I'm older than 60 countries that exist today. Uh, you know, there are states, that, so lots of states have emerged that are younger than me. There are lots of states that have died in my lifetime. Uh, so these things change uh, quite substantially. Um, and even if you look at the democratic experience, um, you know, so let's suppose hypothetically that the kind of rule of thumb is a democracy is a regime in which every adult gets to vote, right? Gets to pick the rulers. Um, democracy by that benchmark isn't that old uh, phenomenon. I mean, if if we're looking at the rule of thumb, let me ask you guys. So if, if the test is to be a democracy, practically speaking, every adult has to be able to vote. Uh, when did the United States become a democracy? I mean, never, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do we, what about convicted felons? Do we? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so, okay, so yeah. let's, you know, there's felons, but even, yeah. Uh, so you're going to, maybe the early 1960s, right? Depending yeah. on, what we're say, the civil rights movement sort of, uh, you know, gained traction. Um, if you're looking at the UK, it only became a full democracy in the 1920s. Uh, by that measure, France only became a full democracy after the Second World War. Uh, you know, Canada, where I'm from, um, uh, everyone had the right to vote by the 1920s, but they actually weren't sovereign until the 1930s. You know, so that's, I mean, some people may think this is ancient history, but it's, it's only a couple generations back. Um, so um, the phenomenon of of democratic regimes is you know is a relatively in the span of human history it's it's kind of an aberration. Um, so we shouldn't take it for granted, and um, and so we need to think in a big way about how we build these systems that are durable. Yeah, uh, Justin, can I ask one more question? Do we have we time? Do. Yeah, we gotta we gotta start thinking about wrapping up. I know, but um, I did want to get back to some of that those talking about some of those practical questions about what we can do as a discipline. I know you already hinted at a few things in in terms of um, maybe needing needing to rethink the way that we train public servants um, and and realizing the importance of training public servants with this broader institutional theoretical view in mind um, and and thinking about how we need to pick our methodology based on what would best answer the questions that we want to ask and that we need to answer. Um, but I was wondering about if, if you had any other ideas for, for practical things. I mean, I, I think about the way that we uh, organize conferences and professional associations and who we end up interacting with um, and doctoral education. Um, are, are there other things you can think of on the ground that we could implement. Hopefully this journal helps to address some of these issues um, that you're talking about, this new journal, the creation of it. Um, but do you, do you have any other thoughts or ideas um, briefly on, on what we might be able to do on the ground to help with some of this? Yeah, I think uh, if I were, you know, if you're organizing conferences, make space to have a dialogue, legitimize dialogue about the big questions. Um, you know, uh, how do we get good at anything? It's by practice. So uh, create space in which you basically say, okay, we want to have a conversation about 
uh, big conversation uh, questions of the moment. You know, and a conference creates space for doing that. In a journal, creates space for doing that. Um, not everything that goes into a scholarly journal has to be a 30-page article that has kind of, you know, a regression analysis uh, in it. You can, in, go in governance, the journal I edited, we try to have these commentators, commentaries that address issues of the moment right at the start. Um, and it's possible to have a, a disciplined, tight, disciplined argument um, in a shorter piece that, tries to address in a timely way what's going on. I referenced this uh, Dwight Waldo piece uh, um, on uh, public administration in a time of revolution, and that's a sort of short commentary written in 1968 to address the demands of the moment. So um, I think one of the things we just do is uh, create space for conversation and, and acknowledge the legitimacy of that kind of conversation. That's that's one thing we could do, and then on the on the on the training side, uh, you know, so much of this is basically um, just creating space and acknowledging the legitimacy of a different way of thinking about the world. And I, yeah, I don't know. Some people sometimes worry that you can't have a general conversation with rigor, and and you can, uh, you know, you can challenge people on. Premise. You can ask them to articulate exactly what the claim they're advancing is. You can learn something from the legal profession here. Um, you know, they don't always use quantitative methods, but they understand how to structure and advance an argument with rigor. And we can do the same. Um, and, you know, the other thing, too, is uh, I don't know if the, the concern is that there's going to be a loss of disciplinary status. Uh, I, I think that if that's a concern, it's overstated. Um, but there's a huge thing you gain, and that is that you are contributing to a conversation that people are having anyway that is generally regarded as important. So, you know, you look at um, the, the, the news media today or, um, or what's going on in kind of the, you know, the, uh, the policy literature today, the policy magazines, um, or what's going on in the broadcast media. There's a huge debate about the future of democracy, um, about the viability of the American way of government, about the whether the, the overall strategy for governing that we've gone with for the last 30 years is still adequate for the needs of the moment, and where we go in the future. Um, you know, what should the new priorities be and how do we restructure government to address new priorities? Let's suppose hypothetically we care, we think we need to do more about inequality or we need to do more about climate change or we need to do more about the threat from China. All of that implies a restructuring of government and we're supposed to be the experts on that. So, you know, uh, the huge gain that we get if we improve our capacity to think about those questions in a rigorous way is that we become relevant and we are seen to be relevant. Um, and, um, and that's a way of, I think, breathing life back into the field. Yeah, thanks for that, Al. I, um, I'm also a, a, I'm a big proponent on at least having the discussions and having them in different nuanced ways that can reach out to different types of audiences 
um, and answer some of these questions. I mean, I like how you phrase that, that we're supposed to be the experts on this. And um, I think having these as part of the idea, the idea we had for this series was to start creating new and different types of spaces for people who care about these types of issues to talk about, to talk about them and gather and ask questions and um, hear from experts on some of these broader topics. That's why it's such a, the PPMG new journal um, is such a nice format for this because the whole big point of it, as we were talking with uh, Kirk Emerson earlier, is to ask some of these big questions. And so it's really kind of a new and um, an exciting journal and a new and exciting format to kind of have these discussions and get to meet people like you, Al. This has been, uh, this is like, uh, has been a real treat to chat with you for the last hour. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, and and PPMG is on its way to being a great journal, and uh, people should contribute to it. Ah, appreciate that plug there. Is there anything you'd like to add about, uh, well, we, I know you mentioned you have a new book, so let's hit on that one more time, and then if you have a website or social media where people can follow the work that you're doing as well. Yeah, sure. So my website's uh, aroberts.us, and I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Alistair Roberts, and uh, I do have a new book out. It's uh, called uh, Can Government Do Anything Right? It's a really short book. In fact, I can actually uh, show the product right here. Um, oh, nice. It's uh, out in the U.K. right now. It'll be out in the U.S. in a few weeks. And actually, um, it, it, there is a bit in the very first chapter where I kind of outline this way of arguing at the thinking about strategies for governing and and that's basically a story about the way in which the architecture of government has evolved over the last um, uh, century to address different challenges in government well we and may just have to line, uh, the bottom line is yeah government does a lot of things right so. <laughs> well we might just have to hold a uh, a little uh, we'll have to hold a book club sometime and discuss the book in a little bit more nuanced uh, like we did the article today because this was uh, again this was a lot of fun um, Nathan, anything yeah, else? I, just, I, I just wanted to say I really enjoyed your article. It's very thought-provoking, and um, this, this has been a great discussion. So thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. Great talking with both of you. All right. Thanks. And we'll be uh, looking forward to hosting more of these discussions. Uh, we'll let you know as we get them scheduled with the authors for the manuscripts for the first issue of PPMG. And thanks for tuning in.